Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Dayson Digest. My name is Ray Perez, one of the third year infectious disease fellows here at the center. And joining me today, two stalwarts of the Dayson program, people you know and love, I have Dr. Libby Dodds, pharmacist extraordinaire. Hi, Libby. How's it going? Doing well. And Dr. Rebecca Mooring, uh, one of our all-star physicians. How are you doing today, Rebecca? Wonderful. Well, so we have a really exciting topic to discuss today. Rebecca and Libby just got back from the big Shea Equity Conference in Atlanta this week, and we're hoping to take some time to really talk about the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion in antibiotic stewardship and what can we be doing at our hospitals to advance those goals. Um, so Libby and Rebecca, I guess just to start, um, any big takeaways or messages that you find yourself ruminating on after this meeting? I think many. You know, I think that the biggest one is that we have a lot to do. There are a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. So a highlight of one of the early sessions was that the team at the CDC, um, led by Lori Hicks and a few others, just recently, last week, the first week of September, published a scoping review on the status of data regarding equity around antimicrobial use and antimicrobial stewardship. So they presented those results and that's out there um, for us to take a look at. So a lot has been done, but basically at the baseline, they found very few publications that use it as a primary outcome or had a focus on that. So we don't have a lot of data. I think we saw through many of the presentations that when you even try to look at the data, your own local facility data may have errors or omissions or a lot of missing data in it, which makes it challenging. And that overall, we sort of lack a lot of action in the area. Those are sort of my takeaways. Rebecca, what did what did you think? Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, Lori Hex um, challenged the audience to do was like, actually state an equity aim, because that was what kicked out a lot of um, stewardship papers was just that like equity as it wasn't actually addressed directly as an aim um, in the papers. I think the other thing that she really drove home was that although there has been description of possible disparity with antibiotic prescribing, there's some major gaps. Um, one is that there's like zero data on inpatient <laughs> disparity in prescribing. So we don't really know how much disparity is going on on the inpatient side. Uh, most of the data is from the outpatient side. A big chunk of it is from pediatrics. So there's a lot that we still need to study and to, to really discuss and start um, recognizing. Second is that she really focused the fact that like while we are measuring or trying to quantify what she calls the markers of disparity. So like and that these are variables that we can actually like measure and look into, but that doesn't give us much information on the drivers or what's causing or leading to these decisions um, that are being made that um, show inequities. So one of the, the main takeaways from the research side is that we need to get a little bit more into the details and do more qualitative research, research understand the behavior or the drivers of some of these um, inequities. So a lot of really tough, complex, complex issues, but, you know, exciting that we're really starting to pay more attention to this and see what steps forward can we take. And to that end, um, everyone keep a lookout later this month, or we're, we're planning on doing our whole DASON newsletter on this topic, reviewing that scoping review that Libby mentioned, as well as other core literature on this topic. But in the spirit of actually, hey, what can we be doing now while we still have all these questions? Um, 
Libby, you brought this really exciting paper. Um, it is called Weighted Lottery to Equitably Allocate Scarce Supply of COVID-19 Monoclonal Antibody. It's by Aaron K. McCreary and colleagues. It was published in JAMA Health Forum um, just this month in September 2023. We'll include the link in the show notes. Um, but you know, in this paper, they were really trying to say, let's really implement something that's going to get at some of these challenges we're facing with equitable distribution of resources. So to set the stage a little bit, we know that allocation of scarce resources is a key component of healthcare policy. Um, drug shortages of particular relevance to stewardship programs, which we talked about in our most recent DASON newsletter with many of the drug shortages that are going on. But this was a huge problem during the COVID-19 pandemic in particular with these novel therapeutics that were hitting the market and being allocated by the federal government across the country. And as we have, are recognizing increasing healthcare disparities, there's a lot of questions about when you have this scarce resource and you have to think about how do we distribute this among our catchment area, how can we make sure that we're doing that in an equitable way and in a conscientious way? And so this study um, really looked at one potential approach to address this and think about equitable distribution. So this was one large healthcare system in the United States and how they chose to distribute Tixagevimib plus Silgavimib, uh, or Evusheld, which you may uh, more <laughs> recognize it. And I think we'll stick to calling it by that for the rest of the pod. It's no longer on the market, so we don't have to worry about doing any free advertising for them anymore. So what did they do in this study? So this uh, study took place across the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, from December 8th of 2021 to February 23rd of 2022. Uh, so this is a large health system, including 35 hospitals and 800 outpatient clinics. The health system was allocated only 450 doses of Evusheld to distribute among the several million patients that are seen across their health system. So how are they going to go about this? They actually set up this really neat clinical advisory committee to develop an allocation strategy. This included physicians, it actually included community leaders as well, uh, and getting input from their patients, um, and it was a huge multidisciplinary panel. And they based their allocation strategy on three key principles, and the state of Pennsylvania had really dictated, these are the principles we want you to be thinking about as you're allocating drug. One was to ensure that all eligible individuals had a chance to access the treatment. Two was to, was to promote community benefit. And three was to proactively mitigate health disparities in COVID-19 outcomes. At this point, we were already starting to get data showing that people of color were having worse healthcare outcomes from COVID. And so the, the state was already trying to think about how can we proactively address this? Yeah, and I think this is actually really important because I think it's important uh, for public health departments to really be leaders and call out when there's inequities and the fact that we need to be considering whole communities rather than just you know the patients in front of us. Because I think that that call out and that really clear like three-part guideline is what UPMC could then like use to build their implementation plan. So I think that was a really key feature and not all states have that at this point. I'll just point that out to you. Yeah, I agree. And I know that many of our DASON members, we saw this at the very local hospital level, um, you know, nothing like this clinical advisory committee, but definitely struggling on who gets to make those decisions and how does this get allocated? And we have members who are part of larger health systems. We saw it, we we're in, you know, multiple different states where we saw different approaches at the state level. And so it's really, it's interesting to see this approach because I know 
this was definitely a struggle with the vaccines, with all of the therapeutics for COVID, especially when they initially were available on these allocation strategies. So um, it's, it was refreshing to see such a, a nice write-up of, of a program and have a state come out with such clear guidance. We weren't working in Pennsylvania, so we, we weren't aware of this. We might have copied it, honestly. No, and I think it's a really good point to emphasize the benefit and unique quality of their advisory committee. Um, you know, in the commentary that was published along with this article, they really emphasize, you know, there's a lot of data that shows that when you get community members involved, you get uptake of these sorts of community-based projects at a much higher level. And so really key piece that they included in their design here uh, and worth noting. Now, you, Rebecca, you mentioned that the state guidelines really put that directive and push for this, but of note, the state guidelines also prohibited the direct consideration of race or ethnicity when allocating the scarce COVID-19 treatment. Um, so I thought it was like, it posed this sort of interesting challenge to the health system and for the advisory committee to, to consider is, hey, we want to address these inequities, but we're not allowed to consider race directly. So what should we be doing? What, what can we do to build a, a feasible intervention? Yeah, and I think this goes along with like the challenges and measurement of race and ethnicity. Um, Libby just mentioned that part of the discussion this week was just that like some hospitals have race and ethnicity missing for like a huge portion of their patients. It's just not reliably captured in their EHR. Using that as a variable in the model to determine who gets care, that would be problematic if you have a bunch of missing data. I think the other uh, potential rationale for excluding it in the in the key guidelines from the state is just that race and ethnicity is often used as a proxy measure for other so social determinants of health. So if you had a better, better measure that was like a little less charged, emotionally difficult to measure, I think that is what they were really challenging the health systems to come up with. And so UPMC chose this measure, the ADS, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, so what did that committee that they put together decide? So they thought the most feasible strategy was a weighted lottery system within relative groupings of immunocompromising conditions. So they came up with a list of particularly severe immunocompromising conditions that were they considered group one. So these are highly immunosuppressed patients, people who you would not expect to have a significant B antibody response to vaccination, uh, transplant patients, patients uh, with severe B cell depleting therapy, ones like that. Um, and every patient who was in that group was able to be entered into the lottery once. And then additionally, each patient who lived in a, an area where the area deprivation index was greater than 80 was given a second entry into the lottery. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar, the area deprivation index is calculated by the Census Bureau to capture the social risk at the level of a census block group. So this is a group of about 1,000 residents. It pulls together 17 different measures across four domains, income, education, employment, and housing quality. The score ranges from zero to 100 with homeless individuals uh, in, in the health system given a score of 100. And they chose the threshold of 80 based on some previous research that had used this score to kind of identify who were the patients at highest risk for poor healthcare outcomes. And they felt that that threshold of 80 was a good one for capturing that. Have you guys ever used this index or similar ones before? Do you have much familiarity with it? I've never used this one specifically, but we learned a lot about it while we were at the conference in Atlanta. You know, one thing that is a challenge if you do this work over time is the ADI can change significantly for a particular geographic area. 
depending on what's happening there. And so it becomes difficult to hard code this into some models. There are some others there, particularly up in the Baltimore area that were heavily using this. And it was interesting to hear their problems because of how it, rapidly it can shift, especially you know, if an area is undergoing a significant change in the population that lives there, a large influx or efflux of people can change your uh, ADI quite quickly. And then I think the census tract data relies on someone having an address. So obviously they dealt with the people that didn't have an address and was by just giving them 100. The address that's in your EHR is what's going to um, determine the ADI score. And of course, that can change over time as well. Yeah. And just like some of the race and ethnicity data, which is often patient reported or put in by the person doing the registration, the address is sometimes the address of a family member or not the current, I mean, not even just moving, but just people choose to use different addresses for various reasons. So it can somewhat skew the results and, and being, I mean, we'd never get to the bottom of it, but it is kind of an interesting thing to think about. Did it give somebody a disadvantage if that's what they had done in this lottery? Yeah, I thought also the, the interesting thing was like, if uh, their ADI was less than 80, they just, it like they increased it by like two. It's like they put them in the lottery twice. And so I didn't know, I mean, there wasn't much discussion in the paper on how they described it you know, decided on, oh, they're just going to double their chances in the lottery versus triple or, or quadruple, or uh, I wonder if they thought about, like, putting them in four times as much um, and how they landed on two, and so that's not really discussed. I don't know. I, I mean, you'd have to, like, sit down with the ethicist and make these decisions, I, I would imagine. I know, and I keep having, as I read this paper, I had to keep reminding myself, because the numbers we'll talk about in a minute were big, but these were still the highest risk patients. These are the patients that 100% of the time you'd want to give this drug to. And that just really impressed upon me how hard that must have been to, because by doubling, you're you're definitely taking a chance away from somebody else who also really justifiably has an indication for the, the therapy, which makes it hard. Absolutely. And, and to that end, you know, a few other things that they did in their allocation strategy to really make for an equitable distribution. So they automatically entered all patients in their EHR into the lottery, removing the need for clinician referral and to avoid potential biases that might be involved in that process needing to be initiated by uh, uh, clinicians. The medication was provided for free since it's being allocated by the federal government. Um, and then what happened is that if a patient was selected by the lottery, they were called by a special dedicated team of staff members who were trained on how to give uh, this counseling in a culturally competent way um, and get them scheduled for an injection. If the patient wanted to discuss this therapy further, they still had they had one week to decide um, and to discuss with their primary care doctor a little bit more. Um, otherwise, if they weren't accepting it within that week, then they could move down to the, the next person on the list for allocation. And what they actually did for an analysis in this study is what we just described is what they actually did with their chance at this. And so to, to make a comparison, what they did is they simulated an unweighted lottery. So they kind of did a, a computer simulation um, of picking out of that group of patients that they potentially could have drawn from their 450 doses and simulated what their average characteristics would be and saw what actually happened versus that simulated lottery that what they performed. And so what did they actually find? So in their catchment area, there were 10,834 patients who had one of these group one indications uh, would really benefit from having received Evusheld. Um, if you looked at that total eligible population of group one individuals, 7.1% of those patients were black and 16.6 lived in a disadvantaged neighborhood. After the weighted lottery, 
29.1% of the 450 that were selected were from disadvantaged neighborhoods. So the math works about twice as many, they got twice as many chances were selected and 9.1% were black. So still, you know, from the 7.1 of the population, we they did using this ADI enrich the uh, black population that were selected. Now, by comparison, in their simulated lottery, 16.6% uh, were from disadvantaged backgrounds, so exactly the base population percentage, and 7.1 were, were black. So again, kind of exactly what the base population had been. And when they analyzed this, these were statistically significant differences. You went up from 16.6% uh, of disadvantaged patients up to 29.1, and 7.1% black up to 9.1. So uh, on that base level, uh, a pretty significant change. Now, it is worth noting that we described the process earlier. These patients are selected, but then you had to call them and try to get them scheduled and see who actually got the drug at the end of the day. And those results were a little bit different. So overall, looking at the entire uh, initial 450 patients who were selected in the lottery, only 27.8% of the patients who were allocated the drug ultimately received it. This happened for a variety of reasons, including inability to reach the patient, uh, ineligibility once they kind of went further into that patient's record, uh, or the patient declining therapy. Overall, similar proportions of individuals from disadvantaged neighborhoods received the drug. So 27.5% of patients from disadvantaged neighborhoods who were allocated the drug ended up receiving it, whereas 27.9% of the patients from uh, non-disadvantaged neighborhoods who were allocated the drug ended up receiving it. So no big difference there. However, an interesting finding of theirs was that Black individuals who were allocated therapy were much less likely to receive it when compared to white individuals. So only 7.3% of Black individuals who were allocated treatment went on to actually receive that dose, whereas 29.4% of white patients who had been allocated that treatment went on to receive a dose. So there's a ton to uh, potentially discuss here, um, but just to begin, I wanted to get a little more of your guys' thoughts on this approach of a weighted lottery. Do you think that was a good way to balance the feasibility of rolling something out quickly with achieving these equi equity goals? You know, One thing I thought was kind of missing from this their discussion was an estimation of, gosh, how much time and effort did it take to launch this when we were in this critical uh, situation, you know, they talk a little bit about, you know, needing to balance the practicality of getting this drug out to people who need it quickly um, versus really trying to maximize that benefit. So what do you guys think of this approach? I thought it was interesting. I thought something that was missing. So just thinking about how this was handled in institutions that we were all a part of, you know, we are DASA members or, or here at the health system. There was a lot of internal meeting, and this was almost a, you know, an also external facing committee um, that the, the advisory group that they did up at UPMC. So I was curious about, did this replace a lot of that work of the internal decision making, or was it in addition because you had to also get buy-in from the key stakeholders internally to roll this out? I imagine that would take a ton of time as yeah. well. I need the like meeting to hour ratio to really estimate how much time and effort and number of individuals that weighed in on some of these decisions. Yeah. And then they had to have the call center to, because they centralized that to contact the individuals who, you know, received doses in the lottery. And what I don't know is, did that skew results somehow? Because it was, they talked about the central group that called them. So it was not coming from their provider. It was not coming from their transplant provider or their oncologist or 
you know, whatever put them in that category one. And I wondered if that might not have made a difference in acceptance rates. You know, this is not coming from a trusted person per se, or did they involve that person? That would be interesting to talk to them about lessons learned in that area. Yeah. And I think also, you know, the method that they chose was the most feasible thing that they could is calling people and trying to just get in touch with them. But that also requires someone to have a working phone number to actually answer their phone, have time to have a detailed conversation. And there's obviously a lot of logistical and potentially structural barriers um, for patients to be able to have a phone call, period. Plus the fact that just getting people to answer the phone is really difficult when they're like working a frontline worker job, um, which a lot of folks in the or disadvantaged populations may have been faced with there. I think the other thing, and when I was talking about the meeting to hour ratio, <laughs> it's just in a pandemic scenario, you're like racing against the clock. You're like sitting here with drug on your shelf. And so it would have just taken a huge amount of discipline to like take a process as complex as, as this and know that you have drug on the shelf that needs to get into arms um, as soon as you can to save people from getting a raging you know, pandemic disease. Um, so it just really took a lot of discipline to like go all in on this pro this process where um, you're under such pressure from the pandemic dynamics. Yes, definitely resource is a, an interesting, I mean, one, I imagine we have listeners saying that, you know, I couldn't do the Monte Carlo analysis. I know that was just for the purposes of the paper, but even just building a system that would randomly generate and run the lottery probably seems daunting to many. Um, and they didn't talk too much about what went into that, um, but they have a fairly detailed central analytics group for, for lots of various quality projects at the UPMC. So I, you know, do have to think through some of those issues. But and and you know, I think we were sort of sideways alluding the, to this, but on the one hand, you can see the real benefit of automatic entry. How many barriers are there to actually get to see your clinician to get that referral initiated? But on the other hand, gosh, 75% of the patients who were allocated the drug did not go on to receive it. And how many hours of that uh, of time was that in attempting to reach out to those people, trying to get them scheduled um, and slowing the process? I, I think that was the thing I found myself thinking about so much is, hey, like this was clearly efficacious in reach and at least attempting to reach a lot of these disadvantaged people. But gosh, if, you know, how... How do we how do you make those tough decisions of balancing the total good for the community when if that's how much of that coming up the works at the same time? Yeah. And how hard was it to wait that week? Oh gosh. Yeah. You know, like again, because you have this yeah. drug and you're just like waiting, waiting, waiting yeah. for someone to say yes or no. Yeah, I also, I appreciated that they included in the supplement some of the actual script that they use to talk with patients and also the FAQs they provided to clinicians. Because, I mean, you can imagine if you're a doctor and your patient's like, doc, I really want this drug. Like, how would you respond to um, that request? And to be like, oh, well, the health system is doing a weighted lottery <laughs> to ensure equity. Um, and how to really have those conversations with patients. I think that would be challenging and, and may have received pushback in other um, institutions that were more autonomous and uh, uh, physician-driven, um, you know, responding to patient requests. Yeah, and I'm sure there were even centrally for this group a lot of those patient requests. I, I know that when I was on days on visits and some of these therapies would come out, you know, the teams that I, the stewards I was trying to meet with would be completely, almost hopelessly distracted by the number of phone calls they were getting with just the please to please help my patient. You know, passionate clinicians who wanted their patient to get what they felt was best. And so I imagine... I, what is the resource that goes into that? Did you need a separate call line just yeah. for just for the please? 
Yeah, maybe this the fact that this was a preventative um, intervention made it a little bit easier to kind of like take a breath and make a plan rather than like an active therapeutic where, you know, time is of the essence. Um, yeah. So and maybe, I, maybe the fact that this was like more of a pre preventative intervention that helped a little. I've also put a lot of thought into how would you do this for a therapeutic? You know, what if you had to add in the layer of positive COVID test and then and then we have drug and we have patient. And do you still do the lottery? Do you know, do you still, you know, almost like randomizing them in a clinical trial? So do you, do you run the generator and say, sorry, this, this person doesn't get it. Uh, like, I, I can't, I, I couldn't make that work for me either. So that's, you know, obviously a huge challenge for other types of therapies like this, you know, and if you want to like, for example, apply to a drug shortage where it's usually an active therapeutic, just, just another challenge, but something to think through. One thing I was hoping to dive in with you guys, so on the one level, you could argue the strategy was a huge success for disadvantaged patients. You saw almost twice as many of them getting allocated drug, granted within the limits of the ADI metric that we were talking about earlier. But I thought it was very interesting that it was not ultimately able to address some of the racial disparity when you're actually looking at patients who received the drug. Um, curious to see what you guys think was going on here, and does that change your evaluation of the ultimate success of this intervention? So they don't provide the stratified data to really look by race. They have this like really great um, figure um, that like starts with the 450 eligible patients and then shows how they fell out. But you don't know what that looks like uh, from white race to black race. Um, so I don't know if it was kind of, it could not be contacted by telephone or it was a de the decline and um, maybe uh, health literacy or distrust from the person calling you. Um, you don't really have that data to to really even make hypotheses at this point. Yeah, well, and I also wondered, there's a part of me that wonders, is it is this the reason why we shouldn't just go on race alone? And it's all these other social determinants of health. What were the true demographics of these areas, you know, the areas that ended up being selected um, or getting the extra, the second lottery entry? Because it did slightly increase the number or the proportion of Black patients, but not as much as it did just in terms of, you know, patients from those underserved areas. So just some, some I think we'll learn a lot more, you know, in 10 years, we'll know, I'll, we'll look back at this and probably think about how simple some of this analysis was, even though it's one of the more complicated analyses we have today. We touched on this a little bit, um, but I think worth kind of reiterating, you know, UPMC is a uniquely large and well-resourced health system that they were able to stand something like this up so quickly. I mean, if this is being tatted up as a model, gosh, how many health systems do we think would really realistically have the capability to do something like this? Well, they talked a lot about how they used readily available data. So this was data, they, it was not a new data element they had to go get to initially run this weighted lottery. Um, but this is the place, and I think Rebecca alluded to this earlier in our recording, is that it's something that perhaps maybe state health departments could help roll out or give guidance on. You know, instead of having their list of three criteria and then the caveat to not use race in your decision making, you know, perhaps being able to say, here is an example or here is a way that could be done. Um, and, and the steps that you would go through in your EHR to pull these patients in and do that might be something very worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine that like their health system uh, not only had a common EHR and data warehouse that they could dive into. Um, but they also had uh, the ability to quickly pull together the key players to create this um, CAG, this group, um, and engage with the community members of, that were relevant to the decision making. So it takes a lot of organization that's pre-existing to be able to pull something like this together. And I think 
Um, that was one of the other sessions. Actually, Libby was a pet panelist <laughs> at the uh, at the conference this week, just talking about systems and kind of. There's just so many different ways to create a system, and some are very much centrally um, organized. Some are more loosely, collaboratively organized, and I think. Um, this example comes from one that had a very good central organization and already had a lot of those structures for communication um, set up. Whereas we have a lot of folks in different systems that are at various stages of their systemness. Um, so I think that certainly is a factor that plays in um, in reaching this number of patients. I know something, I just remember the, you know, when therapies were coming out, there was a lot of drug or vaccine being driven around by state troopers here and then state of North Carolina while well, we figured out where it had to go. So maybe even applying something up at that at the state level just to decide what part of the state does the drug go to, even if it can't be done at the local hospital level might really have helped because again, everybody was trying to make the best decisions, but you just you, you're going so quickly and there was so people would realize, oh no, this needs to be over here, this needs to be over there. We might have been able to reduce some of that time to getting drug where it needed to be. So having your local public health champions on speed dial, very important in these sorts of situations, absolutely. And so one of the last things I was hoping to ask you guys, you know, I, I imagine as I was reading this, I certainly was sort of reflecting on our own pandemic response and thinking, gosh, is there anything I wish that we had done differently in our system or things that I wish we had considered? Are there, at least, you know, we talked about how big of an intervention this would be, but are there at least smaller pieces of this that you guys are found yourself really thinking about? and would consider uh, implementing uh, in the future? I think across the board, and it's not new to just this project, but really getting the community involvement. And, in, you know, that's something that we struggle with in you know, during the pandemic, but also just in our general stewardship programs, kind of as we go forward, how do we get those voices at the table in a meaningful way? Uh, it sounds that UPMC had thought about it, and perhaps because it came out later in the pandemic, they were better at it and ready to do that. Uh, but how do you, how do you find those people and, and how do you make sure you do that well? I mean, I think that one of the other things that came from the conference is um, collaboration, uh, not only externally to public health and things like that, but actually internally. So there are many more uh, cases of inequity in healthcare delivery that we can learn from. Um, and this, you know, antibiotics and antivirals and things like that is, is, is one focus and it's our focus, but that doesn't mean that lessons learned from allocation of other scarce resources can be used in, in these scenarios as well. So I think it's important to just take the lessons learned overall um, in working through this. And I think this is a really nice case example that is uh, of interest to us as like ID folks and stewards. Um, but even the folks on the paper, um, one of the co-authors was one of the opening speakers this week, um, Dr. Estian, he's actually a cardiologist. So um, it's important just to reach across, think a little bit more broadly, and these lessons and processes that we set up, you know, not only can apply to, to what we do in ID, but really more broadly in healthcare delivery. And, and I think something to enlighten everybody on that I had not fully realized is that now a joint commission requirement is that every hospital has to have someone who is charged with leading DEI efforts. And so there might be a ready resource to do this a little bit more easily at all of our hospitals going forward, because they are required to have somebody, you know, at least on a on paper that is responsible for this. Now, whether they're given sufficient time to work on it and actually do those things, I know is always a challenge, but it's something that hopefully in the future might 
help us in this area. I know that we get this request a lot through the Dayson network if they ask if we have a medical ethicist available. And I feel like it's almost like putting, not that everyone will have a medical ethicist credentials, but somebody who's thinking through this at the local level at every facility now, which is great. Well, I think that's actually a beautiful note to end on. Um, and so thank both of you for a really stimulating discussion on, on a tough topic that I'm sure we will continue to be talking about uh, for quite a while. And on that note, uh, Libby, I think you had you had something you were hoping to inspire all of our members to do. Well, at the end of the conference, we actually ran short on time. Not surprising. It was a big topic to tackle in one day. Uh, but we were supposed to have a session that was table work where everybody was going to define their next goal for what they were going to do back at their home sites or as part of their stewardship programs. And so I actually would like to challenge our DSUN members to do that. I think the liaisons will be out and we're equipped to help you. We have some of these data uh, that we can start looking at. We certainly haven't done very much of it, but we do capture race and ethnicity and a few other metrics that we might be able to deploy. So I want you to think about ways you can do this. Um, and if you're interested in more about the conference in a few weeks, it's actually all gonna be publicly available at no charge. So we'll share that with you as well once it's ready. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to that. Um, thank all of you for listening. And until next time, keep an eye out for that newsletter with more information on this topic coming out later this month. And have a lovely rest of your day.